readers! Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. The New York Times has called Paul Rudnick one of our preeminent humorists. As a screenwriter and playwright, his work ranges from Adam's Family Values to Jeffrey, and his books include Social Disease and I'll Take It. His latest novel is Playing the Palace, a hilarious romantic comedy about a lonely American event planner who starts dating the gay Prince of Wales and the royal uproar that ensues. It's a match made in tabloid heaven. Now let's join me, Erin Leaf, and author Paul Rudnick in conversation. Hi, Paul. Hi, Erin. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. So this is a whole new thing, you doing like a book tour without leaving the apartment. It is very new. Well, I did um, I did a show for HBO kind of at the beginning of the pandemic or in the actually in the fall. So all of the press for that was done online, which was interesting. I mean, it, there's <laughs> there's something very convenient about it since you don't leave your house, but it's um, it's very strange because you do start to feel like you're on a space station somewhere. <laughs> Um, so how have you been holding up in general over the past year as we come up almost to the one year anniversary of I the know world shutting down? There's such a countdown now because I actually remember the when things shut down because I was about to go to the opening of a Broadway musical that night. And I debated with myself, oh, I should knew I should support the show and the performers. So I really should go, even though COVID was very much in the air at that point, literally. Um, and I wasn't sure. And then the show canceled its opening night. So I realized, mm. okay, this is not happening and I'm staying home. And that was, I think, March 12th. So um, it went, then I live in New York and the whole city just shut down and it was eerie. I mean, the streets were so empty. It was, um, you know, very different in most ways from 9-11, but I was in town for that as well. But there was that sense of desertion and of shockwaves and of everyone just, you know, desperate for information. Um, so yeah, I've been, you know, especially compared to what other people have gone through, I've been been holding up fine. It's, um, yeah, it's, you know, I think it's tough on everyone. And also I'm a guy who comes out of the theater as well. And that's been just heartbreaking because so many jobs have been lost or at least postponed. And because there's just no creative outlet for people anymore. At least when I'm writing a novel, I could sit in my apartment and write it and talk to wonderful people like you. But if you're involved in any sort of communal activity or any activity that demands an audience, mm -hmm. you know, Zoom readings, things like that, which I participated in are, can be terrific, but it's not the same thing. I always think if anyone wants a proof of why theater, which is sometimes considered a very archaic phenomenon, why it doesn't die. The pandemic is the reason you can feel from audience members, from actors, from playwrights, from everybody, they want that connection. And that's something that I, I miss terribly as well. Um, but on the other hand, I think as a novelist, it's, uh, there is a certain um, practicality. There's a self-imposed discipline 
usually if you're a writer, you force yourself to sit at home and get do the job. You know, and there are so many temptations. There are so many people you'd like to have dinner with. There are so many movies you'd like to go see, so many shows or museums, or just a walk you'd like to take. And now most of that is, is unavailable. So there is a sense of, okay, you know, the universe has sent this message, right. Um, so I've taken advantage of that. Um, but in terms of promoting books, although I have now started to be on panels, which have been very gratifying with other romance novelists and, uh, mm -hmm. and writers, and that's um, a joy. You know, that sense of, oh, okay, this is, we can communicate this way. And thank God we live in an age of such tech that we can manage this. So, um, so yeah, I've been making my way just like everybody else. I've got a lot of masks. <laughs> That's the thing too. It's like, I hope we like stay masked because now I'm like, I have so many. And I was just, I happened to be on like the Mets website this morning and I was like, oh, do I want some museum masks? Like, <laughs> well, also the thing is because it's very cold today here so that um, the mask does help you stay warmer when you're outside. And you start to think, okay, then one tiny upside. Um, and I must say, I've been so impressed where everywhere I've gone, people have been so careful and so resolute. And you think, you know, that's, it's such a, a testament to the people of New York and the rest of the world when they say, as a group, we will collectively do whatever we can. So yeah, as you mentioned, you're a playwright, you're a screenwriter, you're a novelist. When you have an idea of a project or a story, how do you decide if it's going to be a play or a screenplay or a novel? Well, that's actually a wonderful question. And it took me quite a long time to give myself the freedom and the, and the intelligence, God knows, to let the subject matter and the characters dictate the form. That I didn't have to say, okay, today I'm only a novelist and only a novelist or only a screenwriter. So when, I, and it's funny with playing the palace, it sort of went through various forms because I'd had the idea or the germ of the idea many years ago and the title. And I knew I wanted it to be an interaction between people of wildly different social status, that someone who was royal and someone who was as far from that as you could get, you know, a guy from New York. Um, and I thought, okay, originally did this want to be a play? Because, you know, is it set in one room at the palace? Is it sort of a drawing room comedy? So I, and I, I fooled around with that. There was also a moment where I thought, oh, okay, because this, I wanted this to be a sort of all out romantic comedy along the lines of, of wonderful movies like Notting Hill. I thought maybe that's what it wants to be. But when I started to work on it as a novel, especially in the first person with Carter Ogden, who's going through all this, that was when it clicked. That was when I felt, oh, okay, this is what it wants to be. This is mm -hmm. where this story needs to land. And I think writers learn, yeah, go with that. Don't let outside forces start to dictate what this should be or, um, you know, what it needs to be for the marketplace. So it was uh, a, a way of just the, the material found its way. And, um, and that was ultimately just so satisfying because I thought, oh, okay, I've been cooking with this idea for so long and to feel it finally taking shape just was, was deeply satisfying. And sort of along those lines, like you, you're a comedy writer sort of across genres or uh, across mediums rather. What are aspects of like within a book, writing a, a comedic book, writing a comedic play, writing a comedy film that you can do in one that you can't do in another? Are there aspects of each that you find like the most exciting? 
Yeah, it's been a real lesson because I have, at one point I've adapted some of my plays to movies and there will be lines that the audience will just howl at in the theater that land with the most resounding thud on screen. And I have, you know, sometimes it's the same actor, it's the same moment and you just want to howl at the comedy gods and say, wait, that was road tested. Why doesn't that work anymore? And you just learn, you know, the hard way. Um, and that, but it's, they sort of inform each other because you can, especially in terms of dialogue, what's wonderful about a novel is you've got more time and space. You are not constricted to, you know, the two hours that a play or a movie might, might need. So that there's, a re and that there's, what I love is a sense of description and, and I guess what's called world, world building, that way in which you say, okay, I've got some time and space, which I don't want to abuse, but on the other hand, also, you can really use the first person in a way that's a little less possible. On, on stage, you can have it. I've used direct address where a character, you know, breaks the fourth wall and tells you, okay, here's what's happening in my life. With a novel, that's far more natural. That's a, there's a real sense of intimacy with the reader of a one-on-one -on -one situation. So when in terms of comedy on stage, you factor in the audience's, hopefully, you factor in the audience's response, that there are laughs, that you, if you have, I've been very lucky in working with some superb comic actors who get to ride that wave of audience laughter. You cannot hold for that in a movie or in a novel. You can't say, oh, I expect that the audience is just gonna be yowling up a storm here. You just say, no, no, no. You trust that if the, if the material is funny, the reader will, will get on the ride with you. Um, and you can, there's, there's a certain sense of, you could be a bit more subtle on the page that you don't have to worry about a collective response. You could say, okay, I hope that at least three people got that joke. <laughs> and then they tell everybody else. But um, yeah, it's been a, a real education for years now where I've, from working in each medium, and I've learned to welcome that because when, again, as we were speaking earlier, when something finds its ideal home and its correct form, the comedy follows. You say, ah, right. That, and that's why when I, when I get response from readers and they say that they found this funny or they found this touching, I'm just so thrilled because you, you I mean, the only, it's not really a drawback, but it's a, a given of being a writer, although you could do readings, is that you are imagining your reader's response. You're <laughs> hoping that they are involved. You're hoping that they are taken with the characters or at least fascinated by them. And you're hoping that they're laughing if it's a comic novel, which playing the palace, God willing is. So um, when you find that in people and they say, oh my God, that made my day so much brighter or that, you know, that's just what I needed. Or especially with what we're all going through right now, they say, oh my God, this was sunshine. Then it's just, you know, the best response you can get. Um, and yeah, I think especially, even though we are all living on, on Netflix and HBO Max, I think there's also so much more reading going on. And so I think people are so hungry for that at, at every level. And especially I think in romance and in rom-coms, when you think, oh, people want to be transported and the world is a particularly gritty and gloomy place at the moment. So I think that sense of escape and joy and heightened emotion is more important than ever. So if I could provide that, that's, that's a dream.
Yeah. Well, mission accomplished. It was a really funny book. And I especially loved the dialogue had such a great like pitter patter, like a musicality to it that I really liked. And you could feel the way that the jokes were. It was very like rat-tat-tat. I really, really enjoyed it a lot, especially when they were in Piscataway at the sister's wedding. The whole family was really, I could have just hung out there for 200 pages. Oh, I'm um, that so, was so glad you think so. Yeah, no, because that's also, that's not, there's a great romantic comedy tradition of banter and of people falling in love through language and people mm-hmm. finding a rhythm with the person they're meant to be with. And in my family, which is very much reflected in the wedding sequence you just spoke of, um, I come from, you know, a fairly raucous Jewish family in New Jersey, and they were always funny. I thought whatever else was going on with them or was going wrong with them, that humor was always this great balance wheel and this great pleasure. And there's a a tradition of of stand-up comedy and and movie comedy that comes out of Jewish performers and writers. And I love being able to tap into that, which I I did because I just love the idea of having a guy from New Jersey, like myself, um, who was Jewish and had this huge explosive family who, and the idea of introducing the crown prince of England into any family gathering in New Jersey, let alone (laughs) a wedding, was just so tempting and so potentially both celebratory and nightmarish. I mean, it's always a problem when you bring the one home to meet your your folks and your siblings. But if that person is also the crown prince, oh my God, you know, the stakes shoot so much higher. And I just love that sense of of interaction of people, you know, Carter, our, our main guys, aunts and uncles, you know, saying, oh, so you're the prince, Mr. Big Deal. You know, that <laughs> it's um, that kind of, of fun that you can have with, uh, you know, social interactions. Because also romantic comedy thrives on social strictures, on people obeying different forms of behavior. Um, and royalty is ideal for that because they are following a very specific playbook, but so are nice Jewish families from New Jersey. So I thought that collision could be could be pretty joyous. Yeah, there, there's something so wonderful about the outward display of like so much emotion and love and everything's very loud and, and chaotic up against like the epitome of English, stiff upper lip, can't show any emotions at all. It was, it was great to see that. And yeah, I loved all those scenes because also you felt how embarrassed Carter was, but he wasn't really embarrassed because he really does love his family so much and he's part of it. But he still is like, oh, how's this guy dealing with it? I thought it was all really, really wonderful. Oh, thank Um, you so much. Yeah. So have you always been a a romance fan? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's, a lot of it has come from from movies, but I've just loved that form, the idea of um, both the challenges of that form of saying, okay, how do we move the chess pieces around? What does love look like? When is it a dream of love? When is it more the reality? Um, and going back to, you know, Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn and the, and the great screwball comedies all the way up through the wonderful, you know, movies and novels we have today, that it's, um, it's just delicious. I think it's, uh, it, it also just, there's a, a very specific romantic comedy bliss that what's wonderful to see is that that, that bliss is now being made available to people who were often forbidden, you know, that gay characters, people of color, um, LGBTQ, the whole spectrum, that it's uh, 
they are all now a part of the romantic universe in the most celebratory way. Because something I personally was after was a lot of stories of gay life, and these are stories are absolutely valid and necessary, are of trauma, are of coming out to people who are not greeting you with so much happiness and of, of violence of, the, of what prejudice can mean. But on the other hand, I thought all the gay people I know have often been led completely exuberant and wildly romantic lives. And I think we need to reflect that as well. I think um, you, you need an equal helping of happiness, I think to truly portray all sorts of lives. So I loved writing a, a, a romantic comedy that wasn't about coming out. I think we've had mm -hmm. plenty of those and they're wonderful, but um, I thought, no, what if that's the given? What if it's really two guys where the obstacles are much more social? There's a sense of, okay, you are someone that the world is paying attention to every second, that if you are the crown prince of England, you're under such constant surveillance, especially online, which is a new element, you know, or not so new anymore, but where, okay, what does it mean if every move you make is going to be dissected and argued over and possibly canceled by people around the world? And I thought that interested me, especially its impact on, on a romance. You know, can romance survive that? Because one of the other great inspirations for, for playing the palace was the Meghan, Mary, Meghan Markle Prince Harry marriage, because they right. seem so appealing and so smart and so sometimes beleaguered that you, because I thought, okay, Meghan Markle was having a successful career as an actress, but that's still very different from the palace. And there's always been a suspicion of outsiders, people in the arts, people considered more bohemian, women who are considered more independent. And I thought watching the, their, that particular pair wrangle all that and make their way through the, um, the online world especially has been fascinating. So I wanted playing the palace very much to reflect that, to say, okay, you know, it's, it's, it's a Cinderella story. It's the commoner and the prince. On the other hand, it's two human beings and people who are rejecting a lot of what those labels once meant in terms mm -hmm. of status and power. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I, I just love that using romantic comedy as the lens to examine every aspect of the world. Yeah, and I think that's what a good romance does. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, and it, and it has been really wonderful, you know, being a part of the romance community as well, seeing how much more inclusive it's becoming. Like, it still has mm -hmm. a ways to go, certainly, but I think, you know, that all of these stories are being told and how important it is to have, um, everyone gets a happily ever after. Everyone deserves yeah. a happily ever after. And sort of, you know, to have that, that shown more widely. And obviously, as you mentioned, like the visibility of gay people in gay stories and LGBT stories is so much more now, um, you know, than it was years ago. And certainly when you were in your teens or twenties. And I wonder what would it have been like to have a book like this for you then? Oh, it would have been meant the world. It would have been wonderful. I think that for yeah. too long, um, not just uh, queer people, but people of color, people, all sorts of, of groups that are only considered minorities in <laughs> small quadrants of the United States nowadays, but who've had to constantly substitute other lives for their own. You know, and sometimes they everybody can enjoy 
other people's stories, that's, that's a given. Um, but I think having that direct access, being part of the, uh, the overall story, part of the universe, is, is so critically important. And again, joyous that you think, um, I remember when I was growing up and when I would find gay paperbacks, um, hints of gay characters, performers who I instinctively knew were gay, that meant the world. And I would sort of hoard them and file them, you know, in that sense of, oh, okay, that's me. Um, and nowadays, I mean, I know uh, from the response from readers and theater goers that there's, it's, they're just love having so many choices. And it's not just from, um, from LGBTQ readers that, you know, I think people, this is something I learned early on, are hungry just for fresh stories. You know, so many stories have been told so many times. And even when they've been told beautifully, there's a sense of, oh wait, this is new, or this is a traditional story with this twist on it that brings it back to life. That, um, yeah, I think the world isn't reading, you know, alternative romances out of duty or, or social medicine. You know, they're reading them because they're juicy, they're funny, they're sexy, um, and they're fresh that there is something where you think, oh, look, I have not read this 9,000 times before. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, it's interesting also, because I think both um, romance novels and YA literature have been on the forefront of a lot of that inclusion. You know, that it's um, in terms of movie theater has, has you know, been, made major inroads. But again, both theater and movies sometimes require a larger investment of money. There is a financial angle to all this. Um, books are a little bit lighter on their feet. You can get books into readers' hands or onto readers' devices far more quickly. So I've realized that because I've written YA as well, that, oh my God, there's such a, a terrific and passionate readership for all sorts of books and all sorts of characters um, that you find far more progress being made sometimes in both romance and YA, that those are, there's been a, a welcome and a curiosity and a delight in these stories. And that's been, been great to be become a part of. And I, I think it definitely has something to do with people not paying as much, and obviously I don't hold this to be true, but that some people are like, you know, romance is kind of over there and for a long time it's been hidden. Um, and I think YA, like these genres that aren't necessarily taken as seriously, but are doing a lot of the biggest work as far as telling these stories and incorporating these characters that aren't reflected in, uh, in the, it, as much in the mainstream. And, and also that these are books about, like, like you said, about joy and romance and this experience that hopefully is universal. Um, you know, I think everyone, has hopefully been in love or know someone who's been in love and you might not know someone who has solved a mystery or something. So it's, it's always funny to me that romance is this funny thing off to the side where it's like, that's an experience that we all do have, hopefully, we hope. But- um, And the readership is actually far more passionate and involved and um, sometimes, you know, just they can even express outrage, but that they are there for you in a way that sometimes is more lacking in some more traditional forms of literature that I think people devour romance in a way that does not happen elsewhere. And that's thrilling for a writer to have that sense of, 
of direct contact and excitement from the reader. I mean, that it, that's what you you dream of. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's a, a very exciting time for all. Also, it's funny, you know, when Bridgerton on Netflix is their most popular, highest rated show ever. And that seemed to surprise certain people, people who <laughs> did not realize that the books it's based on were all bestsellers, you know, that there is such a hunger for those stories. Plus that that's a much more inclusive show and people were very eager for that to happen as well. So that, and that it's a source of, you know, enormous pleasure that it's, again, it's not a dutiful, you know, liberal virtue signaling. It's right. a sense of, look at these gorgeous actors in these beautiful clothes falling in love with each other. You know, that's what we want to see. And the more people who can be included in that, the better. So it's, um, yeah, it's why it doesn't feel marginal anymore. You know, in a book like right. Playing the Palace, which I think not so long ago would have been far too unusual, now is part of a, a climate of, of LGBTQ um, romance and appreciation and sharing. And that's, um, you just get it. I, it's, the more people's experiences are included, the better. I totally agree. Did you, did you set out to write a romance novel and, and you sort of came up with this idea or did like Carter and Edgar, Edgar come to you and then you're like, okay, and this is the romance novel. How did it? Yeah, well, I always wanted it to be a romance. I wanted that to be forefronted. And it was, because I thought, oh, because sometimes, sometimes the romance in certain books can feel incidental. And I thought, no, 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 this is the <laughs> core of this book. And that it very quickly became clear that it was a romance novel and, um, and a sort of gleeful one. And once I realized that there was a place in publishing where this story could live, I was just thrilled. I thought, oh, okay, that's, that's where these guys want to find a home. Um, yeah, because they're just... Um, you know, there's such an eternal need for romance that it's, um, as you were saying, it's whether you want, whether you are in love, whether you want to be in love, whether you want to just explore those tropes as a wonderful, it's, you know, a form of, of it's like an emotional video game where you just think, <laughs> oh, okay, what if I maneuver this person and that person into closer and closer proximity and what sparks can fly? Um, so yeah, it's, um, again, it's, I guess, when I start to write something, I just always follow the characters. And these guys wanted a big time comic, but but deeply heartfelt romance and sexy as well. You know, and I wanted to just be in that, that wonderful romantic comedy world where you can justify a happy ending. Well, that, yeah, mm -hmm. that's another aspect of, of romance novels that I adore. I think there's a real mistrust of happiness in what might be considered more mainstream literature. There's a sense that no um, quality equals despair, <laughs> you know? And I think that's just not true. That I think I have known, I've experienced, I've, I've seen genuine happy endings in the world. They're rare and they're sometimes tempered, but, um, but they exist. And they're certainly worth exploring. And I think romance, embraces that idea that happiness is valuable, wildly entertaining, and just, uh, you know, a great source of, of human satisfaction. Um, so yeah, I'm just so delighted to, to, to join that particular parade. 
Nice. Um, and earlier you mentioned, you know, Harry and Meghan and everything they've gone through. Uh, what is your relationship to the the British royal family? Like, are you a, a royal watcher? Like, did you stay up for Diana's wedding or any of the subsequent weddings? I did. Well, I have some friends who are true royalty addicts, you know, who <laughs> subscribe to, there's a whole set of these big glossy European magazines called Hello and You that have that cover royals you never knew existed aside from you know <laughs> the, the majors. But and they would show them to me and they would get very huffy if I didn't know who, you know, Duchess so-and-so of Lithuania was and why her relationship with so and you know, with Marchioness, whoever of Sweden was very fraught. And so I just <laughs> I, I found my way into it and I have been. It always fascinates me that some of the the best-selling people and Us Weekly covers have always been royals. And you think, wait, we're America. We fought a war to get away from all that. But we are still so fixated and so obsessed. And I think some of it is the, of course, the classic fairy tale of the big wedding and the beautiful dress and the palace. And we're also equally addicted to what comes after, whether for, for good or not. Um, so yeah, I've certainly shared that. And yeah, I mean, I was um, always very moved by, by Princess Diana and I've continued to follow, you know, her kids and, but, and her legacy, which is, um, you know, there's a Broadway musical about Diana. Now there's the, uh, the Crown just won a whole batch of Emmys for the actors playing royals. You know, the Crown is probably more popular in America than it is in England, just because we have more people. But it's, um, I guess it's also the allure of a story, which we have that in America, but it doesn't have quite the same glamour, I think, or luster that even with our political dynasties, you don't invest in them in the same way and you don't worry and, and hope for those, those couples. But with Harry and Meghan, with Kate and, and William, you really feel for good and sometimes not so good a part of that story. You feel, oh, I'm watching this unwind. I'm getting a new episode every week. And I've certainly shared in that. And I've also, I mean, as a writer, I've been fascinated with how difficult those lives can be. You know, and that's something I've tried to, to reflect in, in playing the palace, that sense of, okay, these people have every conceivable privilege, but there's also a, a sense of imprisonment that there are such enormous expect expectations, there are lives that are conscripted every moment of the day. There's just overwhelming criticism, which even before the, the advent of social media, media was very much in place. That sense that, okay, if you are a royal, you are on display. And if mm -hmm. you are a royal, you owe the world something and you owe the world your life. And that seems like it could be wildly unhealthy. <laughs> could be you know, uh, certainly fascinating and occasionally a great show, you know, so that I, and so I wonder, and especially the English royal family, because they've been so circumspect. I mean, in America, we're used to a culture where no one can shut up, you know, where our celebrities will, you know, write, write a, a memoir a day. And in England, there's a real sense of, I mean, this, although with Princess Diana, a lot of that sort of broke, but, um, there's a mystery there, which doesn't exist anyplace else, where we know what the royal family looks like. We get the announcements when they want us to, but we're not quite sure what goes on behind all those closed doors. 
which probably accounts for books like Playing the Palace, where we decide, okay, I'm going to tell you what happens, you know, when they're alone. I'm going to take you into the bedrooms. I'm going to take you into the family, you know, spats over dinner. Um, so that they're just, it's the royal family, in a way, they are, they're already a novel, you know, and there are, we, we get constant new chapters and updates and we pick our favorite characters and we root for them. So um, yeah, I've always, it's kind of helpless. I, I, it's, I think even people who somehow insist, oh no, I have no interest in that sort of thing. If you ask them a couple of questions about, you know, what princess, what hat did Princess Beatrice wear to Ascot, they know. Um, <laughs> you sort of can't, you almost can't avoid it. You sort of absorb it through your, your media skin. But it's, uh, especially when the people are, are, you know, both incredibly attractive and incredibly bright, like Meghan and Harry, you can get very invested in watching them navigate their lives, you know, and seeing, okay, on some level, there are certain aspects of, of romance and marriage that we can all share. On others, once you've got castles and handlers and cars and private jets, that's very different. But yeah, I, I, I can't get enough. As we wrap up, uh do you have an idea about the first thing that you're going to do sort of when when the pandemic is over and you are fully vaccinated and everyone knows vaccinated like is there is there a moment like a mundane thing that you're like I can't wait for this go into the box office and saying ask you saying a pair for Rednick and just going into that theater what is your like dream first show I'm sure you've thought about it a little bit oh my god um there are so many there. Um, somehow, just because it was something that was so imminent, right, when everything shut down, which was the big Hugh Jackman revival of The Music Man with Sutton Foster. Oh, I, yes. I, you know, it's like, okay, who does not want to see that? Um, yeah. And that's, you know, it's the epitome of a certain kind of Broadway experience and a certain kind of um, star that Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster are both the genuine article. You know, people can really sing and dance and who are going to be live, you know, however many yards from your face. Um, that feels there will be a joy there that I think will be matchless. I also think that those, those early performances of any play or musical are going to be explosive. I think there's going to be an exchange of energy that we will not have seen in, in forever. You know, I, I treasure certain nights in my, my theater going history that felt transcendent, where the roof blew off. And, oh my God, that's going to be every night, I think. But, um, but yeah, I think seeing you, you Jackman at the Winter Garden is going to be pretty hard to, to top. Yeah, that's a perfect one too. Like just a big, joyful, old-timey, big set piece. Yeah, that's what I want. I don't want anything dour. We'll save Arthur Miller maybe for 2023. <laughs> um, Oh yeah, because also just the idea of people dancing and people singing and not having to worry about, you know, spitting on each other. That's, oh my God, is that going to be, you know, a great moment. That'll be a really good time. Um, so what are you reading or watching right now? Well, there's, it's funny, I just finished a novel. It's not necessarily a romance novel, although it has plenty of, of love and sex in it. It's called We Play Ourselves by Jen Silverman. And it's set in various worlds of theater and Los Angeles and filmmaking. And it's just sensational. It was just such a, um, a terrific book. Uh, also in terms of romance, I know from uh, David Levithan's books are always 
priceless. And I know he's written both YA and romance and all across the, the LGBTQ spectrum. So um, those are something I look forward to. I also just read, um, Mark Harris wrote a terrific biography of the director, Mike Nichols, that just mm. came out a couple of months ago. And that was enthralling, you know, just to read about a life of, uh, of that degree of accomplishment and glamour and heartbreak and everything else. So, um, so yeah, I've been, been, uh, been greedy with my, um, with my book list, but yeah, so there's, there's Lord knows plenty out there. And I still go on. I always, um, you know, I go on Amazon like everybody else and say, oh, what, what can I, yeah, it's also because <laughs> it's why Amazon is such a dangerous addiction, because when you can electronically find a book, it feels as if it's being delivered to you for free and it's not, but I still say, <laughs> go for it. It's very dangerous, the one click, especially also oh. with an e-reader, because then it's like, you could be reading in five minutes and then that's how you end up with a giant TBR pile. Yes, it is. And it's also, is there something about how on the Amazon pages when it says deliver to Paul's personal library or to Paul's fifth Kindle, whichever I'm on by now. And they make it so personal, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that you feel, oh yes, you know me. Um, fine, send it on by. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us this afternoon. Oh, it was well, great thank to you. chat. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf, and until next time, this has been Books Connect Us.